Is it his time? Maybe. Yes, sir! From their little studio in South Africa, it's time for The Long and Short of It with Simon Hill and Dylan Rogers. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Long and the Short of It. I'm Simon Hill. And I'm Dylan Rogers. You are long and you are incredibly short. (laughs) Yes. For my sins, poor genetics. What's coming up on the podcast today, Noel? Uh, on the show today, sire, the biggest name in South African golf, Gary Player, nine-time major champion, winner of 167 tournaments around the world. Yeah, we spoke to Gary a few weeks ago, actually. And when you speak to the biggest name in South African golf, you know, the least you could do, the very, very least you could do is be on time. Listen, not my finest moment, but I was on the golf course and uh, on track to shoot one of the rounds of my career. And then what? And then I remembered you had an interview to, be with to do. Gary Player, which I had to start. So I went in solo to the Gary Player chat. Coming up out of Gary Player, for the very first time, we hear from Dale Hayes as well on the podcast in his feature called Backspin. And I think you'll agree, Dale, when it comes to golf history and golf knowledge, there is no one better to speak to than, than Dale Hayes. Certainly not uh, in a South African context, yeah. So Dale is going to give us a little bit of insight into Gary and what he meant, not only for South African golf, but for global golf as well. And for the first time, Sire will go inside the ropes with a well-known caddy called Dave McNeely, an Irishman who's been on the bag of many of the game's biggest names, including Nick Faldo, Nick Price, Portrick Harrington and John Daly. And Dave gives us some insight into what life on tour is like, what it's like to be on the bag of these big names and how he got his first job with Nick Faldo. So loads to get through. Let's waste no more time. Let's chat to Gary Player. The long and short of it. Gary calmly hits it down the middle and players 70th stroke of the day and 278th of the tournament wins the coveted PGA Championship. Gary Player becomes the first resident of a foreign country ever to win the PGA. For doing it, he receives the Rodman Wanamaker Trophy from PGA President Lou Strong. And most important, the biggest PGA check ever, $13,000. Last chance for a tie with Player. And Gary Player, who left the last hole in dejection, becomes the first foreigner ever to win the Masters. The long and short of it. Simon, I uh, left South Africa in April, and uh, I was just, uh, as you know, I was awarded the Medal of Freedom, which is the biggest honor that you can get in America, and certainly the biggest honor bestowed upon me in my life by a mile. And I've been very blessed to have a lot of honors in my career of 70 years as a professional golfer. And I canceled my trip to India, where I was opening up a golf course that I designed, and I had an um, appointment in Abu Dhabi for a Gary Player Foundation charity day. Canceled those in case I got COVID and then came over here. And I was over here one day and they locked down. I was very lucky I'd get here because all the flights were blocked. So I've been staying with my daughter. I came for three days. I've been for six months. You can't beat the price. Uh, but anyway, uh, I must say it's been fantastic because... My wife is very, very ill, and my daughter has been the most incredible nurse to her all, every day, and so we're in one place. She can't travel at the moment, and I've been playing a lot of golf courses here because uh, I can't do my business. You know, I, I'm 85, and I haven't even thought about retiring, but I can't do a lot of my you know, uh, duties at the moment, so I've been playing a lot of golf and a lot of different golf courses, and Pennsylvania, where my daughter lives, has the most fantastic golf course you could ever wish to see. I played with a lot of members and helped them with their swing and made friends with them. And every club I go to makes me an honorary member. (laughs) I I might never go back again, but what a nice gesture. And so it's been, you know, you've got to make the best of everything. That's what I learned as a young man, having struggled a lot in my career. So everything has been fine. Gary, I think it would be fair to say that 2020 hasn't been the best year for the player family on various fronts. We don't have to get into all the detail, but you did mention Vivian a short while ago, and we know the battle that she's facing at the moment. How is she doing, and, and how, how's the family doing? Vivian has pancreatic cancer, which is a very serious thing. She's lost 60 pounds in weight. Uh, but we went to a clinic down in California, immune therapy, no, no chemo, no radiation, and none of our family have that. And we've had uh, quite a few members with cancer in our family, and they've all got cured. 
uh, without the radiation and the chemo by eating correctly and the mindset. And Vivian is doing much better. She's very weak. She sleeps a lot, uh, but uh, she's doing fine. It's very tough on the family. You know, I met Vivian 70, exactly 70 years. I've been going out with Vivian. She's been an incredible wife. To be married to me is very difficult, always saying goodbye, traveling with six children as she did to America, no jets. Think about it, stopping in Africa, four different spots to get here. Uh, you, you wouldn't find a wife like that today. It's impossible. She's looked after me. She's encouraged me to go whenever I was sitting around and maybe not practicing, which was not very often, but she'd say, go out and practice. Never complained about me going away. Uh, imagine having a wife to, to raise six children when you're away a lot. It's been, she's been an incredible wife. And to, to go out and be with a person for 70 years and to see them, uh, you know, not well, it's tough. Gary, hi. Um, best wishes to, to you and your family, and particularly to Vivian. Let's switch matters to, to, to golf now. And obviously, one of the hottest topics is uh, is the U.S. Open and how Bryson DeChambeau uh, managed to win there using a power game. Which uh, you know, the distance uh, the distance debate is not a new one to golf. Yet Bryson DeChambeau seems to have given that um, a new complexion in winning a U.S. Open with a power game. Your thoughts on that and, and the distance debate at the moment? Well said, but uh, I must say uh, you got a very nice job that you're going to play golf today and get paid. Uh, what's the name of your company? This is very nice. <laughs> uh, very, very rare occasion. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, you tell him, Gary. <laughs> your partner has to stay back and do all the work. Hell, I'm looking for a partner like that. Long, <laughs> longest, longest round of golf ever had. Five and a half hours. <laughs> but anyway, that's a very valid question you had. First of all, you know, I started weight training in 1944 when my brother went to war at 17 uh, to fight with our allies. And he said to me, look, you're too small to be a sportsman. You better start exercising. And I promised him that I would exercise for the rest of my life, which I've adhered to. And then when I came over around the world and I was doing the weight training, honestly, I was basically crucified. Uh, one of the famous golf architects, the night before I won the Grand Slam, I was squatting with 325 pounds on my back. And he walked by and he said, this Gary player is crazy. He'll never win another tournament past 35. Well, I won a tournament in the U.S. at 63 years of age. And I'm still at the age of 85, averaging 72. So I sent him an SMS to heaven the other day and I said, listen, I'll be coming and another 10 years or so, make sure there's a good gym up there, please. <laughs> and once back, he said, I'll do that. But anyway, now along comes Tiger. And the, the, the you know, anytime I play badly, oh, well, he's doing weights. Uh, you know, you can't do that. And even at 85, I'm still leg pressing 350 pounds. I run the treadmill flat out and do, and do all my weights. But anyway, I was a, a, a lone man in the desert with this idea of training and getting strong. Along comes Tiger, thank goodness, and endorses all the weight training and exercise I'm doing. And as you know, he played his very best when he was pumped up to the, the full degree. And now comes along Bryson. And we in our infancy, fellas, let me tell you, right now we're still in our infancy. And he's hitting these uh, tremendous drives. He's a wonderful gentleman, very highly intelligent guy. I don't agree with the way he's eating, but I agree with the way that he's exercising. What has happened with Bryson with these enormous drives and his power? And if you break his swing down, he has the most perfect golf swing. A lot of people don't like his golf swing. And a lot of people will say, oh, here comes the scientist. Here comes the coop. In the meantime, the shoe is on the other foot now. They've had to eat their own words. This man has taken the game to another level. But we must never forget the secret to golf is not long hitting. The secret to golf is putting and having a special mind. You can take, uh, in the history of golf, there have probably been about 15 superstars. I reckon you've got to win six majors to be a superstar. I put superstar at a very high level, be that as it may. There are only about, I don't know, about 12 people that have ever done that. I don't know what the number is. But these guys that did that, had something different in the mind. 
I played golf with many players on the tour when I was playing, and they were so much better than me in the practice round. But when the bell went, I beat them. If you take Tom Weisskopf, he's better. He was better than Jack Nicklaus, but he was a sulker. He felt sorry for himself. He didn't like golf. He's making millions of dollars, but didn't like golf. And I told him, I said, if you had a, a real good head on your head, you would have won at least seven majors. But be that as it may, if you look at Wolf in the in the third round of the U.S. Open this year, he hit three fairways and shot 65. He didn't shoot the 65 through hitting fairways and hitting the greens. He shot 65 because he putted like Houdini. And it's always the putting. Look at Tiger Woods, who was never a great driver of the ball. Neither was Phil Mickelson, the two worst I've seen of guys that were stars. And they were in the rough so much. They were rated 129th and 130th in accuracy, but number one and number two in the world. There's your message. There's the conclusion that tells you it is the truth. So, yes, hitting the ball a long way is an asset, but it's not the answer. Gary, how do we how do we take that that that, that debate about the distance and into a tournament like Augusta? Because obviously that's 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 next on the cards from a major point of view, and obviously Bryson DeChambeau is a heavy favourite if he can put it together again like he did at the U.S. Open and putt like you said. You made the point about short game. Your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, the Masters have the most severe greens. Just to give your listeners an idea, if I took say a 15 handicapper, which is probably I don't know what the average handicap is in golf, but if you took a 15 handicap and I put him on every green and I put the pins where they put him in the tournament, he'd be lucky if he could three-putt every single green. He will three-putt every green and probably four-putt, maybe even a five-putt on some of them. <laughs> I'll have you know, I'm doing that at the moment at my local course, so I'd hate to see what I'd do at Augusta. <laughs> anyway, it's the first 20 years of the toughest. So just oh, thanks. <laughs> Jeez, I feel so much better. <laughs> So with the course being uh, a different golf course in November, you know, the weather can start to get uh, a little cold. Grasses will be different. There won't be the azaleas, the great beauty, unless they, they put out heaters. But Augusta have so much money, uh, they might, they've got all kinds of plans. You know, they've got underground heaters, air, underground air conditioning. Uh, and if people who've never been to Augusta had to see uh, what transpires there, they'd be quite shocked. I mean, press facilities that cost $80 million, just things that you've never seen in your life before, uh, a little place on the golf course where people can come along and be a member for one week, $8,000. Think about that. Gary, the Masters, obviously, it is synonymous with tradition and, and prestige and, and one of the big traditions is you being an honorary starter along with the great Jack Nicholas. Is that a tradition that will continue this year in light of COVID? Yes, it will. But I said to Jack, I said, Jack, listen, I'm working out very hard. You know, you outdrove me for 30 years. I said, when you hit your drive on the first tee this year, you won't feel bad because as mine goes by, yours is going to suck yours on 10 yards extra. <laughs> <laughs> now, Gary, your, your relationship with Jack Nicholas goes back many, many years. Uh, old rivals on the golf course, but you've maintained a really special friendship and relationship. Do you see, do you, do you see that the current environment and the current climate on the, on, on the tour, and the competitive nature that it is, not that you guys weren't competitive, but anything that mirrors uh, the relationship that you and Jack have, have enjoyed for, for many years? That's a wonderful question. And, you know, time makes people change and circumstances make people change. We didn't play for any prize money to speak of. I mean, they, they, they win more money uh, on a normal tournament in two weeks than we won basically in our, almost our entire lives on the US tour. But money was not the criteria. Money, what we played for was to be the best. And at the time, we thought it was reasonable money. I was leading money when a in 1961, was 64,029 tournaments and a stroke average of 69. Today, they finished fourth in a tournament and get $400,000. Mm. But be that as it may, you'll never see another big three. I should never say never, but it's unlikely that you'll see another big three like Arnold, Jack, and myself for the reason I'm not talking about playing-wise. We went, they came to my farm in South Africa. They came to my home. I went and flew around the world with Arnold Palmer his jet and Jack Nicholas in his jet. I spent nights at his home. I spent nights at Nicholas's home. We were like brothers. We went around the world 
and not for these enormous sums of money. We went around the world traveling to promote the game. Tiger Woods, I understand, I'll say this with tongue-in-cheek, was offered $3 million to go to Saudi Arabia this year. He turned it down. They offered him $4 million, and he still turned that down. And I, I said to the Sheikh, listen, give me 100000 and I'll row over here. I mean, it's a, we live in different times, but these guys now, it is such big, enormous business. They've all got their jets. They play and they finish and they're off on their way. Yes, the camaraderie is, to an extent, very good. But it can't be the same as Jack and I because they were different times. And I cherish those times to, to have had the opportunity and the blessing. And, man, we really promoted golf. And it was at the right time because television, Mark McCormack, who was a genius, he television was just coming along. And at the right time, we had the three of us and between us, we won at least 56 majors on regular and senior tour and over 350 tournaments. So it was just at the right time. But the camaraderie was at a different level, and it's understandable. I mean, uh, I'm not criticizing the young guys at all. It's just the uh, circumstances that prevail. Gary, with a career that spans 70 years, you've pretty much won it all, you've done it all. Do you ever look back with major regrets on anything, thinking perhaps, hey, I could have done that a bit differently? Uh, I don't know if it's a regret or not. I'm uh, perplexed to a certain degree. Uh, in 1961, a man called Jack Hawkins offered me a five-year contract, a million dollars a year, and to build a house in Chattanooga, Tennessee for a million dollars. Now, if you work that out, what that's worth today, that's $9 million a year and a house for $9 million. And to go live in America and become a citizen because he said, I think you're going to be the next world champion. And I said to him, Jack, you know, I love my country, South Africa, so much. And I want to, South Africa was very little known about in those days. They thought it was a jungle. And I was getting enormous publicity for South Africa and was able to speak up for it. So I turned it down. And did I do the right thing? Uh, yes, I've had a great quality life in South Africa. I've loved South Africa. Africa is in your blood. There's something that's hard to uh, explain to somebody in America, for example, or any other country. But what would I have done? Would I, well, I would have won more major championships. And what was my great desire? You know, when you, when you practice and dedicate yourself to something like I did to God, you know... Golf was the big thing of my life. Obviously, my faith and my family are more important, but golf was a, such an integral part of my life, and I worked so hard and made so many sacrifices to become a champion. I would like to have won more majors, although I've done extremely well, but I definitely would have won more majors. And I often ponder, did I do the right thing or do the wrong thing? But you can't go back in time, but you said a regret. So you can see... I don't know if I regret it or I don't. I'm, in, I'm betwixt and between. Listening to you talk there just gets me thinking. In 1961, you win the Masters. In 1962, you have the chance to become the first person to win it back-to-back. -back. And I don't know whether this is a regret of yours, but it doesn't exactly go according to plan. Tell us what happened. I'm playing Arnold Palmer, and there are 20,000 people there, and there are two people pulling for me, my wife and my dog. And... I'm playing, and we get to the 16th hole, and I've got him by two shots with three holes to go. And I hit the shot 12 foot from the hole. You've got to know the 16th green. If you miss the green, or you hit anywhere on the right side of the green, you can't two-putt because it gathers speed. Mm. He missed the green in the fringe on the right, and he chipped down there, and the ball was going. I had an African-American caddy, and he, caddy, he was the best caddy I ever had. And he said to me, Laddie, he says, we've won. And I said, yes, we have. And Arnold chipped the ball, was coming down and gathering speed and hit the flag. Would have gone right over the green and went in the hole. I was still one ahead. He duck hooked, he shot into the big Eisenhower tree, came down. I hit over the tree, I had a nine iron to the green, hit a five iron on the green and hold that. We went in an 18 hole playoff. I was out in 33. He was out in 36. We came to the 10th hole and I hit the most beautiful shot. 
He had a 30 foot to the right, impossible to get down in two. As a 10 foot break, came in, hit the flag and went in the hole. I said to my caddy, God's definitely an American. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Those are the things that happen in your life. <laughs> what about the, your greatest victory? Is it a major victory or is it something else that perhaps we is less known? I would say winning the Grand Slam on the senior tour because there are only two of us that have done it, and that's Bernard Langer and myself. And I'm sorry to have to boost myself, but I'm the only man on the planet that's won the Grand Slam on both tours. And you might say, well, why? Why the senior tour? Well, there are only two of us that have ever done it. And the reason we both did it, because we were equally as fit at 50 as we were at 25. And this is the reason we did it. And to put that effort into exercising and eating and still be playing golf at 50, to do that and to be able to accomplish that was something special in my mind. Jack Nicklaus thinks I'm crazy when I say that, but I think he understands it now that he's 80 and he's not in good shape. I think, uh, and it's only when people lose their health and become obese, later on they realize what it means to have a good body. And so the, the effort that I put into having this good body was rewarded. That's the word I mean, it was rewarded. And so that I think, but you know, anytime you win a major championship, it means an awful lot. And uh, it, you know, it, uh, the lousiest thing is that I've been second in seven majors. Gary, this podcast, whilst it may be listened to by people around the world, we are three South Africans sitting around the table here having a chat. But I just want to get your thoughts on, on South African talent at the moment because every week, week in, week out, we look on the European tour, we see guys doing amazingly well. We've just seen Garrick Higo win for the first time on the European tour. Guys like Christian Besaden, Vilko Ninaba, Justin Harding, George Kutsia won recently. We've seen Louis put in a good performance at the US Open. Dylan Fratelli over there as well. I could rattle on. On and on and on. Are you proud of where South African golf is at the moment? Extremely proud. And Gary Hugo, I played quite a lot of golf with him. And uh, he is such a gentleman and he is so talented. But what I loved about him, of all the young people around the world that I continuously speak to, mind you, I'm speaking to a young black golfer on the phone a lot now called Kifetsi. They, they are both such good listeners and such great manners. And, you know, I can help so many young people. If I could spend one hour with Jordan Spieth, I reckon I could get him into the top five players of the world again, whereas now he's going straight downhill. He has three terrible faults in his swing. He needs to take up yoga to also get his mind right. He's as jumpy as a cat on a hot tin roof. He needs to really be able to calm down. That is the problem. I see it. I see a lot of faults in a lot of young guys' swings. But golf, there's a tournament almost every week of the year in Japan, in China, in Europe, Africa, America, everywhere in the world, India. And we have our young men playing there and behaving well and getting enormous publicity for our South African country. And what acknowledgement does our Minister of Sport give zero? Zero. It's just sad for me that our government do not understand that at all. Gary, we're going to leave it there. Thank you very, very much for joining us. I know even though you are 85 soon, you're as busy as ever. I follow you on social media and I know that you've got a whole bunch of engagements lined up today. So thank you very much for your time. You're in our thoughts. Vivian is in our thoughts as well. And we wish you all the best. Thank you again. Let me end up with one of the great sayings that my all-time hero, Winston Churchill, had. And this is for young people who want to do well in life. He said, the height that great men reached and kept were not attained by sudden flight. But while his opponents were sleeping, he was toiling upward in the night. And the conclusion is, you've got to work hard. There are no freebies. So many people want freebies nowadays. You've got to earn it the old-fashioned way. Hard work. God bless you guys, and God bless South Africa. The long and short of it. Palmer with a double bogey six is finishing with a 281 and has to settle for a second-place tie. Gary Player becomes...
becomes the first foreign entrant to win the Masters. With a five, and there's the little winning stroke for Claire. Winner of the Masters this year in Augusta. Now winner of the British Open. Who said he wanted to be the greatest golfer in the world? And really, now he can make great claims to have achieved his ambition because who can say that he's better than player now? The long and short of it. Backspin with Dale Hayes. It's where we speak to our resident golf fundy, Dale Hayes. Dale, 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 Dale. Uh, welcome to the podcast. It's all about Gary today, Dale. And tell us a little bit about what makes Gary Player so special, not only in a South African context and what he means for South African golf, but globally as well, because he is a global icon. Well, you know, in the early 50s when Gary came along, the greatest golfer in South Africa and, and one of the greatest golfers in our history, Bobby Locke, had dominated golf in South Africa for, for 20 years. And he was the biggest name in golf. And Gary Player came along as a 16-year-old at school and, and announced to his school teacher that he was going to become a professional golfer. Well, you know, nobody understood what professional golf even meant. His school teacher said, you know, you're making a big mistake because you're going to starve if you're going to try and play golf for a living. Well, what they didn't know was that Gary Player had three things. He had determination. He had a work ethic like no other. And, and he really had incredible self-belief and confidence. And Gary went out and worked his battles day in, day out for hours and hours a day. And literally, uh, you know, till his hands bled, he used to practice. And when he turned professional, which was, uh, you know, in his late teens, you know, he really was not a very good player. In fact, you know, Gary couldn't hit a fairway wood because he just couldn't get the ball in there. His swing was so flat. He hit these low hook shots all the time. You know, he just practiced and practiced and practiced to where, you know, he started to play in tournaments in South Africa in the middle 50s. And in 1955, they played the South African Open and Gary missed the cut. And uh, he announced after he missed the cut, he said, I'll win this thing next year. And he went out in 1956 and he won the first of 13 South African Open championships. And that was the start, really. I mean, although he'd won other tournaments before, he won uh, the Egyptian match play and stuff like that in 1955-56. You know, he that was the start of, of Gary's success. 1958, he went to America, finished second in the US Open to Tommy Bolt, one of the great characters of golf. When he came back in 1958, Harold Haney and, and, and Dennis Hutchinson and one or two others have told me that he was a different player. He came, he went to America and he really was a struggler. And he came back from America with a different swing and he was a different player. And he proved it very quickly. As I say, he finished second in the US Open in 1958. He won the Open Championship in 1959. And then in early 1962, when Jack Nicklaus turned pro, the big three was formed. That was Jack Nicklaus, Gary Player, and Arnold Palmer. And golf changed forever because golf had now made it onto television. And Gary Player was one of those three players that was on television and on the television screens, especially in America, all the time. And Gary is massive in America. Gary will get a standing ovation for going to the loo in America. I mean, it's unbelievable how they love him. And he really is. He's a, he's, a, he's a hero over there. He's a hero in Britain. He's a hero in Australia, where he won the Australian Open seven times. Of course, in 1965, he won the US Open after a playoff with an Australian by the name of Ken Nagel. And that was the Grand Slam that he won. So he was the third person to have won the Grand Slam of golf. Now, that is quite incredible when you think about it. And he was the first of the kind of modern players to win the Grand Slam. So the previous one was Ben Hogan, who won it in 1953. And before that, uh, Gene Sarazen, and when, he won the, when he won the Masters way back in 1934. So Gary, you know, was the first of the modern players to win the Grand Slam. And he was followed the very next year by... Uh, Jack Nicklaus in 1966. You know, it's incredible when you think that that Gary had achieved that as a foreign player, a non-American, traveling from South Africa, because he always lived in South Africa. Six children, and I want to tell you that a wife that was unbelievable. Vivian Player was the secret to Gary's success. She really was. And 
you know, as I say, Gary, you know, Gary played golf, Vivian did everything else. And Gary ended up winning 169 tournaments, nine major championships, nine senior major championships, got into the World Golf Hall of Fame, has designed 400 golf courses. Just to go back to the big three of golf, just to show you how, how they dominated the game through the 60s and into the early 70s, 142 times they finished in the top 10 in majors, and they won 34 of them. There's never been, and I don't think we'll ever see, three players that had, that had a career at the same time that ranked anywhere near the three players, Jack Nicklaus, Arnold Palmer, and Gary Player. It's a rivalry that, that just came at the perfect time because it came exactly as they started to televise golf, which was perfect. Uh, the interesting thing about Gary is that although, you know, he's determined, he's dedicated, he, he works hard. Gary, Gary's an interesting man because he would listen to anybody about anything. I remember playing with playing a, a practice round with Gary in Houston. Bobby Cole and myself and Gary were playing. And Gary hit an iron shot out of the rough and he got a flyer and it went over the back of the green. He stood there and he said, I, I can't believe it. I hit all these flyers. I can't believe it. Bobby Cole said to him, Gary, it's because those irons of yours are stainless steel. Well, he went and changed those irons the same day. He'd won, I think, three or four major championships with those, that same set of irons and he changed them that day because he now believed what Bobby Calder told him that they were stainless steel and that's why he got all these flyers. Another, another lovely story, he idolised Ben Hogan. He once phoned Ben Hogan and he said, Mr. Hogan, he says, I've got to ask you a question. Ben Hogan said to him, Gary, what equipment do you use? He said, I use, I use Dunlop equipment. He said, why don't you phone Mr. Dunlop and ask him for some advice? <laughs> so, you know, Gary, you know, Gary is always after, after an edge. And Gary also loved to be the underdog. And if it didn't come naturally, Gary would find a way to achieve that. He would, he would make himself the underdog by going to the media and saying to them, you know, I'm not going to be able to play this golf course well because it's too long for me, it's too short for me, there are too many trees or whatever it might be. And he would always try and make himself the underdog because he loved to be the underdog. He loved to be the guy that, that came from behind and, and was able to achieve something that other people hadn't achieved. You know, I think I hope by, by doing these, these we, we're going to actually get over to people just how good Gary Player was. Tiger Woods, Jack Nicklaus, and they're the only two players that have achieved more than Gary Player in modern times in the game of golf. And I think it needs to be said, because we look at this from a South African point of view, and I think we kind of value being understated. We're not self-promoting, really. It's it's not really our way of doing things. But people might perceive Gary as, as being arrogant, but I think you have to look at it in the context of of where he operates, where he played a lot of his golf, and that's America, and they value that kind of thing there. They certainly do. You know, I think Gary does feel when he comes to South Africa that South Africans don't realise the success that he's had in golf. And I think sometimes Gary, you know, likes, you know, doesn't like to, but Gary does start telling people what he's done, you know, and, and that doesn't go down well in South Africa, unfortunately. But, you know, as I said earlier, we never saw Gary play a play on television. We never saw Gary play at his best. So I don't think Gary Player's career, you know, um, is as well publicised as if he'd been doing it today, as Ernie Els's career, for example. You know, Ernie, people know what Ernie Els has done. And Ernie Els has won half the tournaments that Gary's won, literally half the tournaments. So, you know, he's half as good as Gary Player is. Thanks, Dale. I think it provides great historical context and significance and a great description of what Gary achieved because I think certainly as South African golf fans we don't necessarily always appreciate uh, what, what Gary achieved during what was clearly a, you know an unbelievable career. Dale, before we wrap up this episode of Backspin, we have to touch on the fact that Gary Player is still one of the best bunker players the game has ever seen. Of course, when he was playing, when he was at his peak, equipment was vastly, vastly different to how it is now. The sandwich started uh, with Gene Sarazen. Gene Sarazen was the first man to win the Grand Slam of golf. He, he won the uh, all four major championships and he won his last one in 1934 when he won the Masters tournament. And he was the first person who invented a sandwich. He got the idea from seeing a seaplane land in the water and bounce off the water. And he thought, you know, if I could find a golf club that bounced off the sand, you know, that would help me. So what he did is he took, a, took a, a normal old wedge of those days or a, the most lofted club that he had and he started 
sticking metal, welding metal onto the bottom of the club. And he, he made literally many, many of them before he actually got it right, where he got what we today call bounce on the sole of the club. That is the rounded part. So when you take the club and you put it down, a sandwich, a good sandwich, you'll find that there's just a little gap between the end of the face and the ground. And that is the secret. That makes the club bounce off the sand, which is why what you want to do to be a successful sand bunker player. Bunker player. Gary Player obviously was probably the best bunker player that ever lived. And uh, Gary used to stand in the bunker and practice and practice and practice and practice out of bad lies. And I mean, he was he, he wanted to become the best bunker player that ever lived and he achieved it. Bobby Vivay once told me a story when they opened a golf course in Mauritius he, he, they did a clinic and at the end of the clinic, there was a bunker behind him and he turned around and he said to the people, he said, you know, this man here is the best bunker player that's ever lived. He said, if I throw five balls and he picked up five balls and he threw them in the bunker, he said, I'll be surprised if, if not all those balls don't finish within four or five feet of the hole. Now the bunkers were filled with broken shells. They didn't even have sand. Okay. And Gary gave him a look like if looks could kill. <laughs> Anyway, he got in this bunker, he holed two out of the five and the other three went within three feet of the hole. And he never said a word to Bobby. He just put the club in his bag, turned around and walked off. <laughs> He'd made his point. So Gary was, Gary was absolutely phenomenal out of bunkers. But the secret is to get a good wedge. And you want a, not that lofted a wedge. You want a 56-degree wedge with good bounce on it. And the less, the harder your bunkers are in, at the course that you play most often, the less bounce you need on your sandwich. If you've got soft bunkers, you need more bounce. George Bloomberg, a great golfing benefactor in South Africa, once said to me, after we, I walked, I watched Gary in a practice round at Royal Lytham and St. Anne's. After I'd finished practicing, I went and watched Gary play the last few holes. And uh, uh, Gary just threw, you know, I mean, 10 balls in every bunker around the greens to play them out. And uh, I, I just couldn't believe how well he played those bunker shots. I came off and I said to Uncle George, we called him, I said, Uncle George, that Gary's unbelievable out of, out of bunkers. Uncle George said to me, you know why, Dal? Because he's always in them. <laughs> and my father, when I related that story to my father, my father said to me, and I'll never forget this, one of the best tips I ever got in my life. He said, Dale, if you can play bunker shots and you can chip, it makes your iron shots that much easier. And you can afford to take chances with your iron shots. You can afford to go for flags because you're not scared of being in a bunker or not scared to chip. And it was the best tip I think I ever had in my life. The long and short of it. Gary calmly hits it down the middle and players 70 at stroke of the day. And 278 of the tournament wins the coveted PGA Championship. Gary Player becomes the first resident of a foreign country ever to win the PGA. For doing it, he receives the Rodman Wanamaker Trophy from PGA President Lou Strong. And most important, the biggest PGA check ever, $13,000. The long and short of it. Right, it's time for a segment on the podcast called Inside the Ropes. Yeah, Simon, we previously chatted to Nick Faldo, the former world number one and six-time major champion, and we thought this time it'd be nice to get the thoughts of one of his former caddies, a guy who had his bag back in the early 1980s. A guy by the name of Dave McNeely, and I think it's, you know, synonymous with the times. A lot of these guys weren't actually caddies by profession. Were you, Dave? Well, yeah, there were changed times then. Um, back then, there were probably more players and caddies, and uh, that was in the early 80s. So um, I actually wasn't really a caddy at all. I hadn't really done much caddying, but I uh, I was in America and I had a car, so pretty much I was like a taxi driver to the uh, to the British caddies who were over there with the likes of Sandy Lyle. Bernard Langer, you know, all the, the very best players from Europe were playing in America. So when it came for their time to, to go back to Europe, uh, one of the caddies, Peter Coleman, said, would you like to work for Nick Faldo? And I said, uh, well, I'm a bit green. I don't know enough. Already Faldo is already a household name. And he said, well, he doesn't have a caddy. So that was it. I, <laughs> I managed to get Faldo's bag really early on. And uh, I was extremely green. And um, he, he pretty much taught me how to be a caddy. And it didn't take very long at all for your inexperience to show. Dave, tell us about the first conversation you had with Nick Felder. Ah, right. I think I know the story that you're talking about. Yeah, he actually told a story on a chat show with uh, Terry Wogan. 
Uh, he didn't mention me by name. He just mentioned I had this Irish caddy. So, uh, <laughs> um, but what happened was, yeah, I uh, Peter Coleman. Uh, he said contact him at his hotel in New Orleans. So I phoned him up. Said, "Hi Nick, uh, my name is David McNeely. Peter Coleman asked me to phone you up. It's about caddying for you." And he said, "Listen, David, phone me on Monday morning if you're in Heathrow Airport. We'll talk then." So with that sort of a snippet of information, he hung, he, he hung up. So then I went and uh, drove my car from New Orleans down to uh, Miami, uh, sold the car back to the person I bought it from, bought an airline ticket, got into Heathrow Airport, phoned him up. Hi, Nick, it's David McNeely. And he said, who? I said, it's David McNeely. I'm <laughs> going to uh, spend carrying for you. And he said, oh, right, okay. Look, I'll tell you what, uh, see me tomorrow at 10 o'clock. Know where the locker room is. Know where the chipping green is. Know where the putting green is. Driving range. And then he says, "Oh, and incidentally, do you have a wheel?" Which in those days, the yardages were done with the pedometer and you know, a measuring wheel. But I didn't know what that was. And I said, "I don't. I use public transport." I thought he meant wheels. So <laughs> we're upon. There's a silence for about 15 seconds, and he's obviously lying on the ground, rolling around, thinking, "What on earth do I have here?" So eventually he came back and he said, okay, so let's get this right. You use public transport to get your yardages. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He says, forget it. I'll see you tomorrow at 10. <laughs> that was our very first conversation. And that was the very first time I spoke to him. And uh, that's, that's how I went. Finished third in the event. No thanks to me. But anyway, we could start and off we went, you know. You've given us a sense of how green you were at the time, Dave. I mean... When you literally got in his bag, though, were, were there examples where you literally you know, had to find your way? Obviously, you, you had caddied. Just how green were you and, and, and how much did Felder help, help you along the process? Well, he was. this was really going into the deep end. And, um, I mean, Faldo, being Faldo, uh, you know, he didn't hang about. He just tried to, he just laid it on the line. I mean, he publicly humiliated me on many an occasion. But I was very thick-skinned. And I wanted to learn, so I took it. And uh, as time went on, we we became very good friends, and then had a you know a very successful relationship together. You know, so he, as I say, he made me into a caddy. He he taught me how to caddy, and yeah, that's why I I learned so quickly. It was because he was a great taskmaster. And which year, which years were you with him, Dave? And 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 were you with him for for, for some of the majors then? No, Dylan, I wasn't with him for any of the majors. If I was to write a book, the, my book title would be How I've Carried for Players Who Have Won 15 Major Titles Without Me. <laughs> when Nick Price team, three, you know. <laughs> Paolo was six. Baudrick had, Baudrick had three. Anyway, I'll go. So anyway, yeah. Um, no, I started with, uh, with Nick in 82. So at the end of that year, uh, Nick won a very, one of the biggest tournaments in the European Tour. TPC, well, the European version of the TPC, and pretty much then that kind of cemented my um, my relationship with him. So he says, right, we'll keep going next year in 1983. So in 83, he won five times and won the Order of Merit. So now off and running. And then in 1984, he was one of the first Europeans to win in, in America, and then came back, won again in Europe. So we were going very well. But then... Uh, it was more or less he was starting to change. He realised in his performances at the British Open, which was his real goal, uh, he realised he had to change his ball flight, and that's where he started changing his swing. And that was a period where his career... It was a very brave move on on, on Fowler's part because he lost his game totally. He lost all his his contracts. He had a generic bag. He even had had a tough time getting the caddy. So whenever he was, uh, there's a story I remember where he was he was flying into Atlanta, and the players were going to Augusta, and he was heading down to Harrisburg, Mississippi. He used to call it the Mississippi Masters, and it must have been a terrible time for him because you know the, the Mississippi Masters is not where he wants to be, you know, but that's where his career was at that at that time. So he must have lay in bed at night, sort of thinking. Wow, what have I done? You know, I've changed my swing. I was a very successful golfer, but to move it up to the next level, he realised he had to make this change. And for many people, that was the end of them. For him, he did move up to the next level and became the great player that he was. Uh, yeah.
around about the same time, you end up on the bag of another Nick, Nick Price, someone that we as Southern Africans know pretty well. And we know him as one of the nicest people to have ever played the game. Nick is such a nice guy. Was he Was he nice to caddy for as well? Oh, it most certainly was. He, he absolutely spoiled me. He was great fun. I mean, really the most phenomenal player. Phenomenal player. Like, literally, if you lost the ball, you would just look at the flag. <laughs> and and that's, that's the clue as to where you're going to find it. You know, if you lost the ball in the air, just look at the flag. And there it is. It was just incredible. Um, and that, at that time, he was so good that uh, his putting was sort of, it, it was very mediocre by those by professional standards. But his ball striking, he was one of the few people where players would stop on the driving range and watch him hit balls. I can't remember at, at the Canadian Open, and he, he wasn't putting well at all. But as an example of his ball striking, I remember it was around about the 12th or 13th hole, and it was a four iron into the green, and the, and the flag was front left, and he could not miss it left. And he said, I'm going after this, I don't care. You know, I'm not going to be putting from 20 feet, that's for sure. And that's, and he would, you know, he was, he was that good. But as I say, he spoiled me because you, you kind of get used to that. And then uh, the very first time I was working for Podrick Harrington, he, he, he was pretty much my next player after Nick. And Podrick, he was learning his game. And uh, wow, whenever I saw Podrick hit a golf ball, I went, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> this is never going to work. <laughs> now you move on to, to Podrick's bag. How different an experience was that? You, you mentioned the ball striking, but uh, perhaps as, as personalities, how, how different was that? Well, Podrick was he's great fun too, but uh, Podrick was he was learning he was learning his game. He's Podrick is one of those players where he wasn't um, sort of given natural talent as much as a lot of other players, but he had a wonderful work ethic. And so he he made himself into a great player. I mean, Nick Price was a hard worker too, but Podrick he really applied himself to his uh, to his sport. And um, he was a very he was a great student. So when he was working with Bob Torrance, uh, quite often he would have long debates with with Bob, saying, "This doesn't work for me. It might work for others, but it doesn't work for me. So we need to find a different way." So between the two of them, eventually they got there and built a fantastic golf swing. But that took a long time. Dave, we won't go through every single guy that you've caddied for, but some of the highlights, some of the big names that, that do stand out, uh, you can't ignore John Daly. And I know you went on his back for that long, a couple of European tour events, but being up close, watching the wild thing do his thing, that must have been quite something. Oh, my goodness. Well, yeah, I worked for him for a three-week stretch and really you could write a golf book just what, what happened in those three weeks. It was quite staggering. I mean, for my money, he was probably the most gifted golfer I've ever seen of anyone. You know, to hit the ball that far, that straight, but had wonderful touch around the greens. Yeah, that's, a, that's very rare. You get all that coming together. But then it's a bit like the, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, you know, where his mind was sometimes, you know, just in the line. It didn't take much for, you know, the... <laughs> for him to kind of lose his mind, so it was a shame, really. You know, he's he, he could have achieved so much more, but uh, he had a bit of a self-destruct button. And um, but to watch him play golf and in full flight, wow, there's no finer experience than that. You know, because he could do things that other people couldn't. And did you see it firsthand how he could self-destruct on the golf course, or even off it? Oh yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes it's kind of funny, you know. And then other times it's very painful. You know? But I mean, one of the funny ones was uh, I think it was around the, we were playing at Glen Eagles, uh, and he didn't like the golf course, so he had the driver out and he's waggling away, getting ready to hit it. And he says, "I know you don't like this club." And I said, "Well, I don't like it, but you're hitting it, so you obviously like it." And he says, "I don't like it either." And he just hit it. So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so he hit it, and he says. Right now, then, where do you think that is? Is that is, it, is the ball in the bushes or in the in the, what we call winds? It's like a gorse bush. Is it in the winds or is it in the in the bunkers? I said I I think that's in the winds. So we get down there and the marshals there standing in the middle of the winds, and uh, John says, "Well, I'm going to just go in there and I'm going to keep swinging, 
but you keep counting and then you let me know how many I've taken whenever I get the ball out. <laughs> Eventually the ball comes out and he says, well, okay, so how many was it? And I said, I think you had five in there. He says, actually make it six because one of them was a whiff. You <laughs> missed the ball altogether. So anyway, he hit it on the green. I think he made 11 in the hole and he wanted to... Um, he wanted to just disappear. The press wanted to speak to him, but he says, no, I'm out of here. So the, the headline the next day, they, they asked me, and I said, how did he take on 11? He said, he had five whacks and a whiff in the winds. <laughs> so and that's what happened in the Scottish Post. <laughs> but that's the way it was, you know. It was just, um, you know, if he, if, he thought, if he thought that he didn't like the golf course or something was wrong, he had to be really in tune with everything and then he would go ahead and play. But uh, if his mind wasn't there, no chance of, of uh, holding it back. No, not, not much self-discipline, really. David, I want you to, to, to relay the, the story from the 86 Masters where when Nicky Price shot, shot 63 to make the cut on the Friday. And uh, there seems to have been some uh, conjecture about the story you told about... Um, carrying his bag the next day on, on the world's biggest hangover, which he has since refuted. What are your thoughts on that? Well, what happened there was, okay, like, if somebody sees me and they say, oh, you're the, you're the caddy who caddied for Nick Price, first person to shoot 63 at Augusta, what was that like? Well, once you've told that story maybe 30, 40 times, it gets a bit boring just saying, you know, power birdie, birdie, power birdie, you know, so bit by bit, you kind of like embellish it, you know, and then you completely distort it. And then eventually everything just becomes like so exaggerated and yet people still believed it. <laughs> so, consequently, it was really funny then when you were telling people the story, uh, you know, and sort of thinking, they, they actually believe this. So there was hardly any of that was true. But um, word did get out, and I think it was, I've got a funny feeling it was Golf Digest in America. They picked up on it. I did this. Anyway, they picked up on the story, and they, they thought it, it was true. So they, but poor Nick had to take the phone, the, the phone calls, you know, because they, they phoned him up to see if it was true. So the poor guy had to <laughs> bat, all this, bat all these press guys away. But none of it was true. It was like, uh, yeah. That's what happened. It was just a, 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 a totally exaggerated story. Coming up on the next episode of The Long and Short of It. Doogie Donnelly, welcome to The Long and Short of It. Uh, Scotland, as you know, fellas, is a country where it's cold and wet for about seven months of the year and, and then the winter sets in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, Doogie, I believe that presenting experience extended beyond just sport into various other entertainment avenues, such as being compare for Miss Scotland. Is that right? <laughs> God, you boys have done your research, haven't you? There it is. A win for the ages. The long and short of it. Simon Hill and Dylan Rogers. Thanks for listening. We'd ask our friends, except we don't have any. So please like and rate this podcast. Until next time.